Good afternoon, Ante. The 10th edition, anniversary edition, I think. The 10th edition, yes, and we are doing it in an afternoon for a change, right? Both That's of right. us are teaching, so we are trying to, we're scrambling for some free time, so this is the only time we could find, but it is good to connect with you again. What are you teaching now? I am teaching a wonderful class. Uh, human Nature and Destiny. It is really a class that I love to teach. It is on theological anthropology or doctrine of humanity or biblical understanding of human life. And I like this interplay between human nature, right? Uh, exploring who we are, our embodiment, our physicality, our all these things that come with human nature, the biblical teaching of humanity, and also this aspect of of destiny, right? In questions of meaning and purpose and all of that. So this is really, we are re I find myself in, in media rest territory as I teach that class. So it's very nice. Beautiful. Yeah. Now, yesterday I talked to one of your students um, and she is flirting with your course. She loves it. So oh, it was, uh, nice. yeah, it was, was really great. And in fact, um, as we talk about Squamish and my experience last week um, or two weeks ago, uh, I met John Massigan. I'm, I'm not sure whether you remember him. I do, he, yes. Yes, yes uh, greetings from him. So, oh, thank and you. He just stressed again how important your classes were for him. Any class he was able to take from you, he was he was taking, while others shy away. Uh, he, he loved it. And then he was thinking, man, if, if I could have just gotten more of these types of classes in seminary, they would have equipped me for the ministry so much better. You know, it's so interesting that you're saying that, you know, our students, and you're aware of this, right? Our students, they have these exit interviews, and they always, one of the questions that they ask the students is what classes were the most meaningful for you? Or not, not, not that, not most meaningful, but what classes prepared you the most for ministry? Or what classes do you think prepared you most for ministry? And I am always fascinated that it is our department and other content uh, departments mm -hmm. like New Testament, Old Testament, that they're receiving the highest grades. Now, this is not about bragging or saying what department is more important than the other. It's not about that. But the fact that students, ministerial students, would perceive doctrine classes and Bible classes as being relevant, not just personally, but actually for the doing of ministry for me is always mm -hmm. very encouraging. So uh, yeah. thank you for, for yeah. these greetings. I really appreciate that. How about you? How, how are you doing? What are you teaching? You know, I might be coughing in the session uh, once in a while. I'm really enjoying to start teaching again, but I have a cold. Um, we are living in the US, so summertime is always air conditioning season. Right. And I'm just not used to air conditioning. I'm still not used to air conditioning. I, I think objectively we can make the claim that in the summer, the buildings are cooler than in the winter. <laughs> yes. So I I regularly find myself not having any cold uh, of, of that sort in the winter. I mean, seriously. So I haven't had any cold in the last three years, as far as I remember. Last three years, I didn't have anything in the winter, except of a COVID infection uh, that, that I had. I ran into in November, but I have been clear of any illness. But every summer, every summer, usually in the beginning of the summer, I, I get a cold because of these interesting. So I had a lot of lack of sleep for the last couple of weeks and, and then teaching right underneath this vent, you know, where it blows this cold air onto your shoulder. And it, it took just, I think, two hours of that exposure. And then I had a cold. Well, I'm so sorry to hear that. I know this is probably affecting your teaching as well, right? Not being able to speak yeah. freely as much as you would like to. Yeah, but my wife says that my voice is so sexy, so I, I'll take that uh, as, um, as, uh, as as some en allowing you to give to, to get some energy from that. <laughs> you mean this like deep, like more like yeah, bass yeah, voice, right. right? Yeah, this Leonard yeah. Cohen voice. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Hey, you know what? I've been thinking a lot about your trip to Canada and the little that I know, the issues that you were invited to address, they're kind of circulating, percolating, whatever in my mind, because they are really touching some very important aspects of our Christian faith and Christian existence, ranging from, well, how do we interpret scripture? Uh, what is, is there any unity to scripture? What do we do with problematic passages or questions of hermeneutics? Also questions of authority that some people there had, I believe. I don't know the specifics, but then also fundamental questions. What does it mean to be a church? And what does it mean to be a church in a secular age? So you've been dealing with all of these issues, and, and we thought it would be a good opportunity perhaps to debrief. Yeah. What were your experiences? What have you learned? You've been on the forefront on, of some of these, for the lack of a better word, even like culture war issues that these people are processing in probably different ways. So tell us about your trip and what did you learn? What did you enjoy the most? What, what, was, what challenges did you face? Yeah, yeah, very good. You know, when I was flying back from uh, Vancouver, I was uh, already looking forward to this conversation because I mean, you, you texted me and said, hey, perhaps we can do a debriefing session um, when you come back. And while thinking about that message, I think I thought, yes, that's what I need. I, I really need some some debriefing. I collected so many impressions, had so many good conversations, um, but then directly jumping into intense course teaching, you're not uh, able to kind of absorb and let things settle and then analyze them and put them into proper places. So I'm, I'm really curious for this conversation and, and how you kind of can guide me in my thinking and perhaps sort things out. So perhaps, um, yeah, as, as a beginning, just imagine the space and and the reality there so rob falkenberg is a former student of us who is um, working there in this community in squamish is uh, working to build a spiritual community there um, it uh, obviously will be a christian spiritual community but um, the the branding is not specific adventist or specific christian but but the, the focus is really on spirituality on how to improve one's life how to move on with direction with orientation with a sense of, of meaning and so he he was asking me a couple of months ago whether i would be willing to contribute to his um, team they are working there now since about let me think 2019 since about three years a good three years they're working there trying to build a community there was no church no adventist church when he came and you had just a few handful of adventists scattered kind of in the territory probably a radius of about uh, what is that 30 40 miles you might have four adventists uh, adventist christians um for the rest you have the people in town and squamish I almost felt like I'm, I'm coming a little back uh, into Europe, a little bit back home uh, into Europe. So it's it's um, a strong middle class, it feels like. Pretty wealthy people, it seems, like strong, wealthy middle class, uh, great transportation services, um, not a rundown city, you know, where you have around each corner homeless people. It seems to be a vibrant community, uh, quite a religious community too. You have a Sikh temple there. You have the letter uh, saints there. You you have uh, a Baptist or an evangelical community there. But then you have like Buddhist centers and um, other type of spiritual centers there. So it's pretty actually dense when it comes to spiritual practices in this place. At the same time, there's a huge population of ITers, so software programmers, obviously well-educated, entrepreneur-style of people, free-minded. And the reason why they're there is they can 
obviously work remote, many work for US companies or big companies, Canadian companies in the big cities, but they work remote, remote, they put in there, you know, eight, nine hour shifts. And then they spent the time in the mountains. Uh, so beautiful British Columbia mountains, the all the tops were still snow covered. Uh, um, snow line was about 1000 meters. And so that's what people do very active lifestyle climbing, skiing, paragliding, mountaineering, canoeing, hiking, uh, ultramarathons are, are being done there, the famous Squamish 5050s there. So kind of imagine this like a well educated, very much spiritually interested, very active, very healthy, at least from the outside, healthy appearing community where improvements on life, personal development is essential, important. So that's kind of the, the setup. And so your, the pastor invited you because he wanted you to address some questions, right? And I think we briefly touched upon uh, last time a little bit. So how did that pan out? Did any of the questions yeah. change? What were they? How did you address them? Did you have more of a conversational sort of setup or did you have presentations? How did that go? Yeah, so when he, when we talked a couple of months ago, he said, well, um, this is kind of how my community looks like, his specific spiritual community. Um, it says about 20, 30%. I, I'm just looking here at my notes, actually, the original notes when, when I talked with him a couple of months ago. And it says 20%, 20 to 30% are very woke, uh, very aware of social issues. Everything seems to be patriarchy, you know, um, everywhere is the patriarchy that needs to be deconstructed. 40% are connected in one way or another to Adventism or Christianity. He speaks here about his core group. These 40% of Christians, they are actually quite eager to learn more about what Adventist Christianity actually means. And here a big part is... Well, if you have a high view of scripture, Adventists seem to have a high view of scripture, well, what to do with a violent God, uh, Old and New Testament, but particularly Old Testament, um, a God who is obviously very emotional. Sometimes it appears that he's uncontrolled, uh, his emotions are uncontrolled, like I'm a very envying God, right? The, uh, a God of envy, of anger. I hate you. Uh, you have several passages in the Old Testament. I hate you. And then, of course, I love you. I hate you. And then is this an unstable God? Uh, I don't want to have anything to do with, with that. Uh, apologetics. Obviously, it's a, it's a issue. Can can we actually, should we relate to this type of God? Or is this relating to this type of God basically um, making us digress in our moral developments? Um, obviously, since this is a Vogue community, people are very much aware of ethical issues. And they're actually not, don't think about these, at least that's what I've learned. These are not people who are standing on the sidelines and cheaply, you know, commenting on, on what's going wrong in society, they actually do something about it. And they actually are serious about it. I, I can give you one example. So there is, let, let, let me call him Stefan. Uh, Stefan from Belgium. He is probably now 32, 33 years old. I, I met with him. I, I talked with him through a couple of nights. Uh, beautiful, beautiful human being. So imagine 32, 33 years old, grew up in a Catholic family, a loving, good Catholic family, took distance from the church uh, when he was, I think, 14, but went to um, Rome Catholic uh, monastery schools. So very good education. I mean, very classical, you know, European education, if you, if you want, but um, took distance from the spiritual aspect from the religiosity of it and then decided when he was 18 to study law not because he likes it actually um he said i want to study law because it's a difficult study and i know that i don't like it but i want to see whether i'm able to push myself studying six years of law 
a finish with a degree. And if I'm able to do this, if I have such a self-discipline, if I can push myself doing this, then I know, then I know I can, I can make it in life. So that's what he did. He studied six years of law. He didn't like it. He knew that he was not going to work uh, in it graduated and then said, okay, so now I'm ready. As a treat, I'm going to travel the world. So he traveled the world. And of course, with his background in law, he was trying to make money by helping businesses to establish themselves. So he worked for a couple of months in Indonesia, learned Malaysian, becoming part of you know, the Indonesian culture, helping there a business or a few to, to establish themselves. I have it uh, well remembered. He went to New Zealand, did something self, uh, something similar. Then went to Colombia, South America, picked up Spanish there, learned Spanish, became part of the community there, helped a couple of businesses to establish themselves there. And then he came to the conclusion after some time that he needs to come home. He cannot just be away. He cannot just. So he went to India as well to learn some medica uh, to, to learn medi meditation. Then came back and said, "I cannot just be an alien. I need to find myself back in the community I w um, I was brought up." So he said, "Let let me bring all the the insights that I've gathered and and land them in my Catholic environment." So he goes the Camino. And on the Camino, he kind of brings all the things that he has learned, has learned to, together and decides to commit his life to a good life. He wants to be a loving person. He wants to do good. And so he gets to know a girl there. He's now married to her. He moves to Canada and he's now a carpenter. You know, he works as a carpenter. But you can talk with him about anything because he knows almost everything. Yeah, And he's so in tune with himself. He's very, he's very um, concerned about food, about healthy food, about activity you know he's strong he's he, you look at him he's like he's like a george clooney type of person so but he doesn't brag he's very uh, very humble in in the church environment he plays the piano a little bit in the background but he's not a god-believing christian or something like this you would never pick up he's just a very much he supports the community he sees something good is happening here and so he wants to invest into it and each morning he wakes up at five o'clock in the morning to do meditation for an hour And he goes usually to bed at 9, 9.30. So th this, this type of person, I mean, uh, obviously he's a very special person, but this type of vibe, that's what you find there. And uh, the pastor wanted to, um, to have me work with these types of people. Right. This is, reminds me of something. If I can just insert a, a, a quote here, I, I just spontaneously came to my mind, something that I regularly read to students and something that people who perhaps listen to this and have read the book will recognize this. And you might notice this is a book on how parentheses, not close parentheses, to be secular by James K. Smith, reading Charles Taylor. And in the beginning of the book, there's this quote, and I just want to read it briefly because it mm -hmm. really speaks to this situation. He says, you're a pastor or a church planter who has moved to Brooklyn or Berkeley or, or Boulder or Vancouver, right, let's say. Mm -hmm. Maybe you received a call to transplant yourself from Georgia or Grand Rapids or Berrien <laughs> Springs or some other religion, religious region of the country. Sensing a burden to proclaim the gospel in one of the many so-called godless urban regions of North America. You've left your Jerusalem on a mission to Babylon, and this is now important. You came with what you thought were all the answers to the unanswered questions these secular people had. But it didn't take, you, it didn't take long for you to realize that the questions weren't just unanswered. They were unasked, mm -hmm. and they weren't questions. That is, your secular neighbors aren't looking for answers for some bit of information that was missing from their mental maps. 
To the contrary, they have completely different maps. Yep. You realize that instead of nagging questions about God or the afterlife, your neighbors are oriented by all sorts of longings and projects and quests for significance. There doesn't seem to be anything missing from their lives. So you can't just come proclaiming the good news of Jesus who will fill their God-shaped hole. They don't have any sense that the secular lives they've constructed are missing a second floor. In many ways, they've constructed web of meaning that webs of meaning that provide almost all the significance they need in their lives, though a lot hinges on that almost. And, and the reason yep. I read this quote is because of this phrase, right? They've constructed webs of meaning. And I I'm sure that this is something that you've experienced, right? B yeah. Whether it be ethical advocacy or, you know, enjoyment of nature or this kind of dabbling in some sort of immanentized spirituality mm -hmm. or whatever types of spirituality they have, that these people are not these empty vessels w walking around. If you ask them, they would say they live very meaningful lives. Is that kind of a good portrayal of the kind of people that you've interacted with? Yeah, yeah, very good. Um, very good. That's what... I would even push it a little bit further. I think I would minimize the almost. So it, it is that they live really fulfilled. I mean, not all, obviously. So, but, but the type of some of the people that I've met, they live really meaningful lives and they actually contribute to the, to the well-being of others. For, for example, the, this, uh, uh, this wife of uh, Stefan, she grew up in a Catholic family. And interesting, actually, many of them grew up in some sort of Catholic uh, background, but I think it's because of the localities there um, and took also distance from, from her faith. Uh, and now, you know, went into different type of Eastern religiosity, also meditation and, and things like that. And then decided to come back to Christianity. And she's very self-reflective and uh, her conclusion to why she i ask her why do you go back to christianity what what pulls you what what is the benefit of it and she said you know i think it is because christianity is more familiar to me she said it's i i could go into buddhism or into hinduism but but the theologies there the the metaphors there the cults and the liturgies are so much different and and so massive and deep and and i'm not knowledgeable enough of them to to easily fit in and and christianity is is a way for me to live a spiritual life um, and not have to go through a deep kind of reconversion of theologies and and relearning and, and so on so that's that's how she um, got back into christianity and she's invested fully into this uh, this community and and i would say even though she is not perhaps fully con uh, invested well she's definitely not fully invested into biblical christianity but more in kind of her web right that she's creating she lives a very meaningful life she's the mother theresa uh, in in that uh, community um, hmm. and she is not aware and i think she doesn't need to be aware that there's something lacking i, I think christ is partnering with her and she's partnering with christ even though but that's true for the two of us too even though it's her version of Christ, right? Yes, um, yes. Yeah. Perhaps just to, this word almost, that would be, we could have a whole episode on the word almost, right? And I think it can be taken in different ways. I'm thinking, for instance, I have a number of, uh, like my father and his, uh, his wife now, uh, secular, atheist, agnostic people, and they are living in one of the most beautiful part of Germany, and you could say whether that is the case or not, but they live in Freiburg, which is a mm -hmm. beautiful city close to the Swiss and 
French uh, border. And right there, Black Forest, you know, hiking, skiing. Um, he had an airplane, just very active, just amazing life. There was no need for God. There was no missing. But yep. then age comes, mm -hmm. and then you cannot ski anymore, and you cannot fly anymore. And suddenly, all the emptiness of that begins yep. to press upon you. So that almost doesn't have to be subjectively experienced at every given moment. But when disorienting situations happen or boundary situations in life where someone dies or, or cancer comes, you know, like this famous song, I don't know if you know, by Regina Spector, Laughing at God. You know, God is, she sings, God is so funny, you know, at a cocktail party, we have all the jokes about him and all of that. But when a you know, policeman comes and, and on your door in the night and says, hey, we have a, mm -hmm. you know, a message about your daughter or this, like no one laughs at God. You know, and she goes through these life situations. It seems to me that, that that's how I would interpret this almost. In, when it comes, when the spiritual questions begin to press in mm -hmm. these moments of disorientation. Another thing that I wanted to ask mm -hmm. you also, but I understand you correctly. You know, we had this for many years. We had this four writers of the atheist apocalypse, right? Dawkins, mm -hmm. Dennett, uh, Harris, Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens, very strident atheism, very in your face, you know, this kind of, mm -hmm. the, the God of the Old Testament is a monstrosity and all of this kind of language. But it seems to me that we, that we sometimes neglect when we think about atheism and talk about atheism, is this more open and tolerant and quote unquote, even spiritual atheism. Yeah. Like I read, I read, I think about the book by uh, Andre Kant uh, Sponwell, I don't know if I pronounce it correctly, but his the little book of atheist spirituality, right? Mm -hmm. Or all the Botton books, uh, mm -hmm. his book Religion mm -hmm. for Atheists, sure. and all of that. So it's and, and all these, you know, uh, I know some people in in the UK, you know, they have these worship atheist worship services. Mm -hmm. There's no God, there's yeah. nothing, but these beautiful hymns, they're singing hymns, and all of that. Would would you say that the, what you're experiencing, and basically what uh, Charles Taylor also talks about, our age being a whole age. So we have left spirituality, we've left God, we left traditional religion, but there's something is pressing upon the margins of, of people's lives and they're looking for something. Is that what you have noted in the way you describe it? Uh, yes, yes and no. I mean, uh, Robert Falkenberg, the, the pastor there, he, he said, I'm paraphrasing him, he thinks there's a spiritual emptiness that invites for these spiritual practices. And that, that's what he sees there. That, that would kind of go into what, what you're saying. And while he was saying that, I was thinking, hmm, you know, now I realize why I feel at times puzzled in Squamish. Because the, um, the spirit or this post-Christian, post-religion culture that I was exposed to in Amsterdam was quite different than this post-Christian, post-religious culture in Squamish. And I, I wasn't able to put my finger on it. And when he said that, when he said there, there's a spiritual emptiness that invites for spiritual practices in his community, then it dawned on me, namely that in Europe, uh, definitely Northern Europe, definitely in the environments I have lived in, think about Amsterdam, you could say this was not a spiritual community. It was an intellectual community, a community that, you know, deconstructs tradition and in a very kind way, it's not, not, not aggressive atheism, uh, who sees kind of the function of religion and, and how it blends into the process of anthropology and stuff like that. But it was an intellectual one. Those people were not invested into spiritual practices. If you had a person that was invested into spiritual practice, it was usually kind of a, you know, new agey, weirdo. So that, that was kind of more my experience 
back then, I mean, this is like 10 years ago, and things might have changed there too. But this, this has been the dominant experience there. It's an intellectual, post-religious, post-Christian, intellectual Nietzschean type of uh, religiosity. So now when I look at Squamish, this is much more hippie style of uh, of post-religious post-christian experience they're hmm. heavily involved into veganism you know into right, meditation right. into uh, environmental friendly operations um which yeah which is a very different and so the reason why why i think it's important for me to kind of understand this is that i would say this Diese trans, this transcendentale Obdachlosigkeit, you, you shared that with me a couple of, of weeks ago, the, this transcendental homelessness, right? Um, I, I would say this transcendental homelessness was something I could work with very well in Amsterdam because it was there. It was recognized by everybody uh, that there is no you know, ceiling anymore, right? There, there is no that, that, that we can push through or so. But uh, yeah, everything is just material. So and And here there is so much spirituality that it almost feels like there is not such a strong sense of, if at all, um, transcendental homelessness. Uh, People are in tune with the forces of the world. And that made me conclude, and I I would be so curious to see what what you think about that, that this is actually paganism 2.0. It is People, what spirituality does in in pagan cultures, and I'm not trying, I'm not using this term as a negative, actually. So, but it, in all the troubles and challenges of life, um, what can you do? Either you cling up to a cling to a solution that rescues you, rescues you out of this world and out of this mess, or you just accept it. You you practice kind of meditative stoic disciplines that help you to come in tune with with your fate. And that's paganism in its purest, in, in, in a sense. And because of these practices, I think this loneliness, this transcendental loneliness, is at least numbed uh, in a very effective way, so that it's difficult to address it, because it doesn't seem to be there in the conscious frame of the mind. So do I, do I understand you correctly? Let's say in, when you talk about the first instance, and we could think of a good name to name that experience, mm-hmm. what you describe, but... I don't know if I'm correct when I compare it, and if I compare it, let's say, to what Albert Camus writes in The Myth of Sisyphus, this idea that, you know, the myth of Sisyphus, the guy pushing up the boulder, not the guy, the Sisyphus pushing up the boulder, and Mm -hmm. then it rolling down, and this kind of idea of the absurd, right? Camus' idea of the absurd, and you find meaning not in wishing away the reality, but refusing to give in into absurdity and continuing to push the boulder. That is the courage to be in many ways. But in fact, you what you're describing perhaps from a community perspective or from the perspective of Nietzsche those would be like the last man who have kind of lost the nerve and who have not yet gazed into the abyss that comes as a result of God is dead but are trying to find kind of these crypto spiritualities and mm-hmm. four mm-hmm. religions to kind of pepper over the tremendous sense of loss that has come in the in the wake of the dead of God uh, kind yeah. of uh, yeah. culture yeah yeah, I, th- I think excellent, excellent. So yeah, I would say kind of the European experience or the Amsterdam experience, if I want to speak with some experience or authority, uh, let me reduce it to the Amsterdam experience, that would be like the Nietzschean version. So um, God is dead, we have killed him, and, and he won't resurrect. And and everything after that is, is kind of this melancholy. It's an intellectual melancholy. It's this transcendental obdach, uh, transcendental um, homelessness, very much aware in the mind, and when they when they process thoughts, and this is something that's not that I have found not in, in Squamish, 
And I'm so used from a mission perspective, bringing Christ to communities. I'm so much used to work with this awareness of that we have killed God and that he will not be resurrecting, uh, uh, that he cannot be resurrected in, in this kind of abyss. So that, that's where usually my approaches to mission took place. But that was not there in, in Squamish. So in a sense, it was experimental, namely that I tried to, I'm a Rob, actually, uh, Rob is sensitive to this and, and he, I think, found the, the important topics that would work there, namely to speak about patriarchy, the deconstruction of patriarchy, because that's on their soul, that's, that's on their mind, that's what they're investing into, they want to have a more judge world. And so that's kind of how, how I try to contribute then to that discussion and open aspects to it that are religious in, in nature. So I have a question for you. I'm deeply interested, perhaps before we go, before you mm -hmm. go, you're actually sharing some of the specific presentations that you had. Here's a question that I have, Oliver, for you. I'm thinking of two possible, I mean, there are many possible approaches, but just in terms of pure typology, two possible approaches or responses one could have to that situation. I'm thinking of this magisterial quintessential text of liberal theology, uh, Speeches on Religion to Its Culture Despisers by Friedrich Schleiermacher. For mm -hmm. readers, for listeners who don't know, Friedrich Schleiermacher was this towering figure in 19th century Germany, one of the founders of the University of Berlin, extremely influential. When he died, there were like 100,000 people on the streets mourning him. And he realized, you know, that all of his kind of romantic friends, uh, friends who belong to romanticism, are leaving, have nothing to do with Christianity anymore, have nothing to do with scripture, with doctrines. And so what do you do? Well, basically, he has this apologetic strategy where he is saying, well, you know what, what you're rejecting is not really religion. The true religion is mm -hmm. about this deep intuition of absolute dependence. And so basically, the strategy is, okay, let me reduce Christianity to these basic spiritual longings that people have and remove everything that is offensive. And what I've often heard like in Adventism in Germany, now I've been exposed to very little Adventism, I'm not generalizing, but mm -hmm. Advent, Adventism in, in, in Germany has, has a lot of this kind of, you know, it's talking about meaning and loss of meaning and, and kind of not speaking in doctrinal fashion, but this, you know, there's this um, Anselm Green, I don't know if, if you know him, the, 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 uh, is he a Benedictine monk or what kind of monk? And he's speaking this kind of very generalized spiritual kind of terms about relationships, about anxiety, psychologizing faith in the effort to reach, to reach people. On the other hand, you have this obviously Card Barth being the antithesis, another towering theologian of the 20th century, where he believed, no, 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 we are not making the gospel relevant by reducing it to, the, to the, some common denominator. It is the gospel that creates relevance. And yep. the most relevant that you can be in such situations is simply to proclaim the story of Jesus. I'm wondering where do you stand from your experience in Amsterdam and also your experience in Canada? What is the best way to speak to these situations? Yeah, so, so perhaps more on a general note in the beginning and then more perhaps into the details. On a general note, I think both are right. So you, you, you cannot make sense by speaking a language people don't understand. So you, you, need, to, you need to find connecting references. You, you need to find a common reference system that you can refer to and then from there you can develop your thought and from there you can pick people onto a journey. But if you're not able to park the bus in a, in a bus, bus stop that we all share, well then, then the journey is not going anywhere. 
So I, I think you you need to have a sense. That's why I'm what I'm telling my students when we do uh, Old Testament theology. We, we start with a description of culture, what culture is, and how cultural functions, and everything is culture, and, and so on. And I'm always encouraging my students to say, if if you want, say, telling them, if you want to be a good pastor, you need to be a philosopher. So you you need to understand the thoughts of systems, the systems of thoughts. You need to understand the music, the lyrics that people are listening to. You need to understand what's happening in the newspaper articles. What are the undercurrents of social debates, um, of the intellectual debates, of the economic debates? You, you need to be in tune with these things. You need to understand them because then you have bus stops. So and and then you can transport. So you, then you can offer so so to say a, a meaningful transportation service. So that's number one. Number two is if I can just jump in on this number yeah. one, just hold number two. Is this exactly what Kevin Kevin Van Hooser says when he says that pastors need to be public intellectuals? Then they right. need to be kind of ethnographers of secular culture, observe, understand, being able to communicate that. And that is you said that is why philosophy and sociology and psychology, all of right. these disciplines, are helpful as tools to understand. The culture to which we are speaking and yep, sometimes yep. that is lost you know as long as i know how to preach you know that, that's fine but you are an ethnographer you need to understand what is going on to be able to speak to the culture uh, sorry exactly. i just wanted to come in on that yeah exactly i mean, I mean yeah. you need to listen to the poems that people cling to you need yes. to listen to to some of the pop and rock music that that seems to pull crowds of millions yes. so the hopes and the hang-ups of culture bo both exactly. of these things yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly so so that that's number one But number two is you, you're not offering any transportation, any meaningful transportation service if it's just looping them in the same, the people in the same world. So that that doesn't make any sense. So you need the gospel, I believe. I mean, obviously, I'm a Christian, so you you need the the gospel. And what I've that brings me kind of to the second point: don't water down the gospel. If you water down the gospel, it's the you can stop doing mission. So it's it's not it's not going to take you anywhere. But <clears throat> what I've experienced is that we need to, in this modern 21st century environment, we as Christians, I'm now speaking to my own community, so to say, we need to get disillusioned about our methods of doing mission. So, you know, we have these methods. When I went to seminary, you know, you need to do these 10 steps or, or these are the five most, most important steps. And it's almost as if we have reduced human beings to kind of uh, commercial products, you know, um, how a cliffhanger, get them, get their attention, then put them into the advertisement route and, and then the end, have them buy your product. So, I mean, how awful. So, I mean, how capitalistic of, of, of a, of, of a mission method is this so I, i would say that's not that might have worked and and even that does not qualify or justify this method as being a good method but it's definitely not working in squamish and it's definitely not working in amsterdam and it's definitely not working in any kind of setup where people have explored the world where people were able to get access to to the world outside of their village so what what do you do then If no method actually works anymore, I mean, you can, Rob is a very intelligent person. He studied so much on mission and, and experimenting and, and so on. And, and there's nothing pre-baked that works. And what I kind of concluded for myself is like, the only thing that actually remains is you, is you as a Christian. So it's your person skills, it's your reading skills, it's your empathetic skills, it's your listening ear. It's actually a lot of maturity that, that you need to bring into if you want to become efficient missionary of course I, i mean god can use everybody and that's true um amazing things happen where you think nothing could have happened but uh, the, these are the exceptions in the end 
It is how mature are you in your faith? How well do you know ethnographer? How much of an ethnographer are you? So I think in the end, method falls back onto you. Like, who are you placing yourself in this world? That's the method. Um, And that brings me kind of to the next point. And that is, I use... I'm so disillusioned about methods. Let me say say it that way, perhaps. I'm so disillusioned about methods. I'm so disillusioned about themes and topics that might, you know, attract the attention, not working or working the wrong direction. That for me, mission is now, you might laugh, laugh at it, but for me, the most effective, what I've experienced in the last 15 years, for sure, is actually just opening the biblical text with the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 1, and then reading that text with those who are interested, that's basically what we did in Squamish, and seeing what's happening. Let the text speak. Let's try to break through our biases. Uh, So obviously in the first session here in Squamish, I I kind of clarified what are typical biases by which we read this. So let's park them. Let's take them at least artificially away. And let's give this text a chance to speak itself. And when that happens, it's such a relief that I've experienced because then it's not me who is in control of that. It's not me who is successful or not successful. It's not me who is failing or not failing. The text will do its thing. And if the text is really holy, and if the spirit is really the author of of these texts, well, then something happens. And if something does not happen, it's not my fault. So that's kind of my... I've I've really started to rely on the power of the word, actually. I've really started to rely on what these texts can do to the brains, to the emotions of people. I mean, there were people crying uh, in all three sessions. And I didn't didn't do anything. I didn't manipulate anything. I did not, you know, put... Uh, prepare often I do not even prepare uh, words I mean there was one lecture obviously that I read down but often I just go through the verse verse by verse and and showing what's happening here what's happening and when that happens it's just a redemption to all of us to me included yeah you really reminded me of something I have so many thoughts going in so many different directions Uh, but I want to talk about this reading of the text Uh, I was just reminded just how powerful that is by reading a commentary uh, by Leon Kass on Genesis. Leon Kass is a scientist, physician, taught for many years at the University of Chicago, which is very well known for its great books program. So all students in the undergraduate college had to go through this sequence of classes where they started from Plato, Aristotle, and then Shakespeare, all these major, Mm -hmm. Machiavelli, all of that. And then he decided, well, why couldn't we read Genesis as a text? Let's forget about all the religious presuppositions and proselytism. Let's just read it the way we read Plato's Republic. Let's just read it as a text. And it was an unbelievable experience. The insights that students came up with. Oh, you know, you perhaps the most important thing about Genesis 1, let's say, is differentiation. You know, students said. Everything is being different, progressive steps of differentiation, you know. And, and all these great ideas that he ended up writing a commentary from this kind of philosophical, uh, neutral perspective. And I I think there's mm-hmm. such a great place for that, and what you're saying is is so important. And I believe that that, that is, that's what is that's what's needed. Uh, uh, you yep. know, even when Jordan Peterson, and not going now into the, all the political things mm-hmm. associated with him, but when he started having these lectures, recording on on Genesis, right, on the from from a more psychological perspective. I mean, I know people who told me he saved my faith. 
right? Mm -hmm. Simply by trying, okay, it was a psychoanalytic perspective a little bit, sure. uh, psychological from a kind of Jungian sort of uh, depth psychology, and that's fine. But I believe that when these people can begin hearing the text and forgetting about all mm -hmm. the other stuff, many mm -hmm. good things can take place. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, yeah, that's my experience. I, that's, uh, I, I have been baptized in this experience. I would say that's the method forward. I mean, it's not, if you want to call this a method. Well, it's a method. It's an odos, right? It's a way. It's a path to walk. Yes. 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 Um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think it's which important. Actually, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, which, which actually, I, I think, you know, I'm teaching now these intensive Hebrew courses. Um, and often the, the students sitting in wonder, well, why do I have to learn Hebrew? And it's so difficult. And it's a different language. And why? It's all, we have translations and we have Bible software and stuff like that. And so why, why, why do we have to go through this? And then in my first lecture, then I always read a section of um, uh, Gasset, Ortego Gasset's uh, um, Reflection on Translation, uh, where he basically kills translation, right? He makes an argument that translation does not exist. You cannot translate from a source to a target language. And he has a couple of examples. And I'm reading from a, uh, from a compilation of uh, articles on linguistics. And in that compilation, the section of uh, Ortega Gasset, the student respond in a lecture that uh, Gazette is giving on the impossibility of translation and says, well, now you have killed translation. So, and we're all following along uh, to this burial. So uh, basically you have, you've taken away our future lives. And then Gazette says, well, no, yes, translation is dead, but now's the point to say long live translation. It's only when you see the impossibility, so, so to say, that you see what possibilities you have. And learning, I think it's part of a Protestant Christian of an Adventist Christian ethos. If if you want to bypass the tradition, or perhaps not bypass the tradition, but reflect the tradition, if you want to develop a critical position towards the tradition, if you want to get access with fresh eyes to these biblical sources, these primary texts, then there is nothing but you have to learn biblical Hebrew, biblical Greek. Mm -hmm. um, th this is the way forward. This is why the Protestant Reformation requires from all their pastors you know, to, to learn Hebrew and Greek, because that's the only sort they have, in a sense, to dig through all these hundreds of layers of theologizing. And I'm not saying that this, these layers are always bad, right? Uh, th there's a lot of wisdom and insight in, in these layers. But But to get a critical stance, you need to uh, learn Biblical Hebrew and Biblical Greek. So I'm, I'm always trying to motivate my students in this. But back to the discussion we, we just had, I think it's an important part, because I could not read Genesis the way I'm reading Genesis to the community without knowing Biblical Hebrew uh, and, and Biblical Greek. So it's an essential tool for me to bypass or critique or show what's happening in the source and what's not happening in the English translation. So this is what you did, right? You opened the text yeah. and you talked to these people. And by the way, this I'm just the comment you made about translation. Oh, this is this is so, so correct. And I can think even of, I'm just digressing now, but of specific works. And you you and I, we have some, we know some of these works in philosophy and how impossible they are to, to oh. translate. <laughs> you know, like think about yeah. translating Heidegger into English, which is absolutely, totally... Im impossible. You have this monstrosity of a language when you read it in English. And and uh, anyway, so it's, it's difficult. I'm, it's a beautiful yeah. reminder that you said and why it's important to go to the text. But I'm thinking now of this community, right? Because they had mm -hmm. some specific questions yeah. about God and violence and, and God being this kind of you know, hyper-violent, destructive 
kind of borderline personality almost mm-hmm, person, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of yeah. unpredictable in how he's going to react. That's how some people are portraying him. So how did you speak to that specific issue? How did you yeah. help those believers to show them a completely different God? And what do you do with those texts? Yeah, yeah. So I think first from a strategic perspective, and I, I think I failed there. I, I think I could have done much better. So, But because they're so woke and they're so sensitive to the injustice that happens, um, this is kind of the connecting thing, right? Uh, um, I was thinking, and I didn't do it well enough. I, I, I need to confess here. Rob, if you're listening, I'm sorry about that. But um, I, I wanted, I think I wanted to see that their wokeness can become part of a much bigger wokeness a transcendental wokeness, so, so, so to say, what we would phrase in Adventism as a great controversy, that they can become part of a much bigger movement, a movement that has already started before they ever you know, saw the, the light of this world, and that will continue after they, they are dead, and to be participating in this type of uh, celestial wokeness, so, so to say, will give them a proper place uh, in, in this world. I mean, I know we, wokeness, the term is loaded, and, and it's but just for the purpose of this conversation, so I'm, I'm using it this way now. Okay, so, so how did we do this? There were three presentations. The, the first presentation was just reading Genesis 1, basically, and it had the title, The Slave and the Patriarch, Prophetic Unmasking of Toxic Power. I'll say a little bit about this in, in, a, in a second. The second one was a new vision of fatherhood, uh, Adonai's vision for life of meaning, that was focusing basically on the Genesis 2 part, named the garden. And then the third part was the Exodus of love, your route to maturity. So that was actually going through the book of Exodus and the different stages that the book of Exodus goes, kind of from a psychoanalytic perspective, you, you, you could say. Obviously, I could not now jump into problematic texts because then you don't have the network uh, of, of meanings and reference and I didn't know the people so I thought it's better to stick to texts that we all get access to and that we all can actually understand within an hour or, or two. So the first one, the slave and the patriarch, prophetic unmasking of toxic power. So basically it started it started with this to say Genesis 1 has been used and misused in in many forms. It has been used to develop, to argue for the hierarchy of man and human beings, or Genesis 2, the hierarchy between man and woman, right? Um, It has been used to uh, justify a lot of crimes in, in this world as well. And so I said, in order to for us to get access to this text again, which might confirm our bias, but it might actually also work against our bias. Let's just let's just read these texts as if you have never read them before. So that's the first step. Becoming aware of your bias, removing your bias, allowing the text to be what it is, whatever it is. And number two is to give them a sense of who's the first reader. And the first reader are slaves. So the, the first reader, if a high view, obviously, if you have a high view of scripture, um, even if you don't have a high view of scripture, if you're a historical critical reader, um, the first readers are ex- exiles, right? And they, they are suppressed people. They are oppressed people. So wh- whatever route you take, if you're informed by historical criticism or if you take a high view of scripture, the, f- the reader is a reader who is oppressed. So and then you say, so, okay, what is a slave looking like, an, an ancient slave. What, what is the life of an ancient slave? Uh, particularly Israel and Egypt now, if, if you take that perspective. He's replaceable. He lives about 20, 30 years in average. Obviously, the average is because so many children die, but kind of average 20, 30, 30 years. And he's replaceable. There's no meaning in the life of the slave unless to fulfill the commands of somebody higher. There's no safety for you. The only purpose 
of, of you is to live for others. That, that's it. There's also no love for you. I need, I need to often remind them because we're living now already for these hundred years of in a social farewell state in democracy and in, in, in wellness that for the majority of human history, love did not be, it was not a right of the, of the oppressed. So who you marry, who you choose, with whom to get children, that was always decided by others. And that's the same for the slaves too. Um, I mean, just think about the Afro-American experience in, in the US. So slaves are there to produce other slaves, to produce the next generation, next wave of, of slaves. And if there are too many slaves, well, then you just kill them as, as babies. So terrible, terrible life. The right to love is for the first time, so to say, in human history, redeemed or returned to the individual in Genesis 2, where it says, and a man leaves that's the most wrong way of phrasing it from a patriarchal perspective. And therefore, a man will leave mom and dad and cling to, to a wife. It should have said, therefore, the patriarch sends out his boy and arranges the marriage with this girl and makes sure that the boy and the girl come back into the patriarchy under the roof of the patriarch and that they bless the patriarch with many kids. So that, that's how it should read, right? And all of a sudden, you have this revolutionary text that says, no, not daddy sends you out, you, the boy, he leaves mom and dad and he goes out. And it also doesn't say, and he will choose a woman, right? It says he goes out and he will cling to a woman. So even the uh, even, even that kind of gets deconstructed. Anyway, so uh, I'm, I'm going through these different elements of what it means to be a slave in the ancient world. And then ending kind of the climax for me is why do those slaves not rebel? rebel? I mean, if, if you're destined to live just 20, 30 years, you're not allowed to live a romantic life and not building up a whole you know a whole own house uh, property and stuff like that living a meaningful life why i mean you're dead anyway so why not just stand up and kill you know and and rebel um it's it's uh, interesting that in the ancient east and world we don't know of any slave rebellions i mean we know late in in roman That's history the spartacus so spartacus yes. is kind of an exception but why do they not rebel and the main reason is because they believe in a theology in a theology that justifies their state. So basically, the pharaonic theology makes them, the slaves, a needed element in order to keep the cosmos in balance. So if, if they are not doing their work, then the cosmos gets out of balance. And if the cosmos is out of balance, then hell, you know, hell breaks out and the whole, whole cosmos gets debilized. So because of their faith system, they allow themselves to live these 20, 30 years and, you know, and and end mis their miserable life. So these are the first readers, and then we start going into Genesis one verse one. And I mean, I, I cannot now summarize everything, but I can kind of give you some snippets here. So we say in the beginning. I'm reading it kind of in the Hebrew, literally translating it to them. So in the beginning, it created the gods, the heavens and the earth. He says, well, yeah, that's it basically says the gods. Um, it's not a wrong translation that you say, and God created, but for the original reader, everything is possible now. I mean, each religion can now project into this verse and say, yeah, that's what we believe. The Baal worshippers, you know, the Astarte worshippers, you know, the Marduk worshippers, the Babylonians, Assyrians, everybody would say, yes, that's what we believe. In the beginning, you know, the gods created or God created the, the world. The term that's being used there is the standard term being used in all other Semitic languages. Um, Allah, Al, right, uh, Elohim. So it's a confirmation, so to say, of all religions. It's the most common ground uh, um, statement that you can put out there. Right, right. And and then you continue, right? And then and God created the sun or, or the light, right? And now some religions freak out already because wait, 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 wait. It's 
it's the light that is the God that creates everything, right? Exactly. Or it's the water that creates everything. And so once we're at verse 26, we have killed all gods. So, and, and so now we are in no theology territory anymore. There's no God. And you wonder, well, what is left? I mean, everything is killed. And so now we have to reestablish if possible, a new God. And that's where 26 and 27 become interesting, where humankind is created, right? And, and let me create somebody that is like me. And all of a sudden, the deconstruction of theology, oppressive theology, which usually, you know, identifies a certain type of created thing, like sun, water, and, and so on, the deconstruction also means the deconstruction of political hierarchies. So because now the pharaoh loses all its legitimization, uh, because his theology is now uh, also undermined. So and in this now, connection, if I yeah. can just jump in, right, one way in, in which it is being undermined is precisely, you know, that the, the image of God, right, that's Salem, right, the, the image of God that's there in 26, 27, which is not any more part of this kingship theology of the ancient Near East, where only the Pharaoh is the image of God, but all yes. humanity, everyone, men, right. women, everyone is the image of God, just how profoundly a revolutionary text that is, just goes yes. along the lines with you. This is a type of deconstruction, for sure, of the ancient Near Eastern sort of, yep. yeah, ideologies. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, and you can imagine, you know, a listener, a sensitive listener, sees in her or his biography, that's what has happened in my life. I believed in the theology that justified me accepting my fate, my situatedness in life, my what people said I'm supposed to do, that's what I did because it was legitimized by some sort of belief system, um, be that a Catholic system, be that an Adventist system, yeah, be, be that a Buddhist system, what, a Hinduistic caste system. So, and, and there, you know, you saw already the first tears because people realize, wow, this God, this God is not the God of Pharaoh. This God is not the God of the kings. This, is, this God is not the God of the patriarch. This God is the God of the slaves. He, he's the, my God. So, and yeah, so, and all human beings, man and woman, right? Uh, and they are to rule. And the interesting thing is then they are to rule, not other human beings, because all human beings are now kings and queens. Uh, therefore, they cannot rule over other human beings, but they rule over the animal world, right? Over, over nature, over, over the animal take care. And even that rulership is a very caring rulership because it says, don't kill the animals. Uh, so don't do what the pharaoh does. So, I mean, you can go in many of these details, but in the end, kind of this of this first chapter, you have shown that the God of the Bible is a God who is obsessed, in a sense, with a deconstruction of oppressive theologies, a deconstruction of oppressive structures, a deconstruction of social hierarchies, and is is invested into preparing a new frame of mind, so to say, where you realize, no, I'm a child of God, and thus I'm of royal nature, and thus um, I, I have a place, and I'm needed, I'm needed, uh, because things are out of order, and, and so I need to bring help, bring order into this world. Yeah, and I think it's very important to notice this aspect, right? I think it's been really invoked in academia in the last couple of years and decades to read, see the Bible as an anti-imperial text, mm -hmm. and sometimes that can be pushed into all kinds of, uh, for me, strange directions. But that certainly is an element, like even in the New Testament, right, the very use of the term Lord or Curios. When you go to Turkey and you go to some of this 
these excavations and you see these inscriptions, imperial inscriptions, and there's only one curious in the Roman Empire, and that is the Caesar, right? And suddenly now mm-hmm. we have the Lord Jesus being called Lord and how that is implicitly uh, subversive. And I think it's, uh, you know, a, a point, and as we're slowly kind of going towards the end, I think what you're actually doing, Oliver, is so absolutely essential because one of the greatest paradoxes of the modern critiques of Christianity specifically is that they are done in names of categories that would have been impossible without Mm -hmm. the Judeo-Christian tradition in the first place. That's the one thing we mentioned Renard Girard uh, uh, in one of our earlier episodes. But that basic insight, right, the, the absolutely original idea that God is on the side of the weak and the oppressed is completely unheard of in the history of religions. And it is from that concept, that concept of inherent rights and justice later on developed with some combination of stoic natural law and some other things there in the mix. And that is why someone like Jacques Derrida will say, right, without the Judeo-Christian tradition, the the concept of crime against humanity wouldn't even exist. You know, the concept of genocide would, would not exist. And it is paradoxical that this text, which has been the fulcrum, the, the source, the nursing house, right, of these essential ideas like human rights and, and dignity and all of that, is now being seen as an oppressive yeah. text. That is one of the greatest paradoxes. So if we can actually begin telling a different story, re-narrating what the Bible is all about, is, is the best apologetics we can do in yep many an instance. And so what you have yep. done is absolutely amazing. I'm so so happy yep. that you had this opportunity. I mean, if, if you just think about Ludwig Feuerbach, uh, right, the critique, religious critique of religion, Ludwig Feuerbach or, or Karl Marx, I mean, they are Jews. They, they, they have access to this text. I mean, there's, there, there's a reason why much of their rebellion is so biblically founded. So, yeah. but um, Against yeah, the so father pe- always figure, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, pe- perhaps to just kind of finish up the overview on what has happened. Um, so after discussing the, the garden in the second um, lecture, I went through the Exodus book. And to me, it's very essential that after Genesis 1 and 2, after, after you've discussed this, that you don't end up with now just confirming wokeness. So uh, j- just the, the general ideas of yeah deconstruction. So uh, no, because then you can quickly enter into a revolutionary state, uh, and this is this is what the Bible is not about. The Bible is about reformation and not about revolution. Uh, and so the Exodus is kind of the excellent way to show ca- uh, show that how how to make sure that a slave who just got redeemed out of Egypt does not turn into another pharaoh. What type of process, what type of developments, what type of maturity process takes place? And so, you know, I'm going with them through the different steps there. Perhaps that's something for another episode. But um, so in, in the end, you arrive at a place where you find, think about the Ten Commandments, you find a man, a middle class man, right? Uh, the Ten Commandments are not addressing a woman and they're not addressing a child. They're addressing somebody who has property, um, somebody who can envy the property of somebody else. They're addressing actually a married man. They're addressing a man in the middle of his age, because now the matter of taking care of parents uh, is in, in the horizon. It's actually a man who has arrived. So a man who has it all, right? He's in control. And that man can easily become a pharaoh, uh, mm-hmm. can easily now turn and rewrite the history of redemption as a history of his own willpower 
uh, I killed the Amalekites, you know, here's my sword. And, and you, you need to push through. When t life is tough, you just have to do it. And when the Red Sea is in front of you, you know, don't wither, just push it, just go. So don't have fear. That's the narrative that, you know, s sometimes is being told. But if you look back on this Exodus story, the truth is that the Lord was taking you by your hand. And at each instance, at, at that moment, you knew it was not me. It, it was with the assistance of somebody else. And that's and that exactly what you see in the, in the Decalogue, right? Exactly that very structure, right? Because it's basically the Decalogue is a, a bill of rights in some of, the, uh, in some of these commandments anyway. You know, you were oppressed. I have done this. Now you're, you don't do this, right? You had to work all the time. I've liberated. Now keep the, give the Sabbath even to your uh, servant. All that structure, right? God's action creates both certain rights are being given, but then also responsibilities because I have done it. Now you don't do it to others. Right. The structure yeah. of rights and the responsibilities as mediated by the liberating action of God is at the heart of the Decalogue. I mean, yeah. that's exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You, you could say it's, it's, it's Israel's Bill of Rights. I think you, you just mentioned it. It's Israel's yes. Bill of Rights. It's Israel's Declaration of Independence. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that, that, that was kind of the end of, of this series oh, there. And uh, yeah, I hope that people were able to locate themselves in that narrative and, and start having a look at the biblical text in a more favorable way. Oh, Oliver, this was amazing, edifying. I wish that I could have been there sitting at your feet and I'm as you're talking about this. And actually the thought comes to me, how rarely we have sermons of that sort. I don't know if you noticed mm. this. Like we have a lot of stories, illustrations, mm. but this and this, a text which is then used basically as a jumping board for whatever else, but really immersion in the text, not simply in kind of narrative preaching, that's a different thing, but kind of this deep immersion into text, how that is very rare. Not that we have to preach like this all the time, but we yeah. should be preaching more like that more often, and it's actually very rare, at least in the environment where I am. I'm not criticizing the pastors, it's just yeah. the context in which we live, but that would be, it would strengthen people's faith if they could see the depth and the beauty and yeah. the absolute relevance of this ancient text for our times. Yeah, existential expository preaching. That, that's what I'm, I'm existential exist is that a thing actually is that I, I, I don't know I, I don't know I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking I'm just making up so, uh, so existential expository right existential oh, you're, you're, expository teaching okay that was first mentioned by Oliver Glantz that I heard on this day do you have to copyright that as we have to copyright you know what we said you know we have to make a t-shirt uh, WWOD what would Oliver do uh, that, that's kind of a pun on our last uh, episode in any case Oliver it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. I was kind of a little bit uh, tired, you know, after teaching in the morning, but I feel now rejuvenated as I always do. Thank you for sharing this. We are going to continue these great conversations and unpack this even more in our future episodes. Yeah, thank and, you, Ant, Ant, for taking me by the hand. That's what I need. We, we okay. have to continue conversing. Wonderful. Until then, until next time, blessings to you and see you for our walk tomorrow. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> okay, bye-bye.